Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello and welcome to The New Economy. I'm Stephanie Flanders, head of Bloomberg Economics. listen to any business leader talk about the world today, you'll hear them talk about the pressure of global competition, the relentless focus on the bottom line, the rivals snapping at their heels, the struggle to stay ahead of the pack. But you can't help noticing that those same businesses have been making an awful lot of money. Net profit margins for top S&P 500 companies have been rising more or less continuously since 2012 and jumped to a new high this summer. It makes you wonder whether the market can really be so competitive after all. A bunch of economists have been asking the same question lately, and it turns out the answer matters a lot, because if companies, not just big companies, but across the economy, are getting more market power, that could explain why economic growth has been slower in this recovery and why the average worker feels like they've been getting a raw deal. I call it the bad capitalism debate. Others talk about the rise of superstar firms. Whatever you call it, it's starting to attract a lot of attention. In a little while, I'm going to talk to Bloomberg columnist Noah Smith about what it means for capitalism and the future of the world. But first, US economy reporter Chris Condon has been doing some digging. By the way things look, as well as the way they perform... Our homes acquire new grace, new glamour, new accommodations, expressing not only the American love of beauty, but also the basic freedom of the American people, which is the freedom of individual choice. Who sell and all who manufacture what is sold know that American women often have the deciding voice in whatever we come to buy. They offer her the romance. Ah, the mighty U.S. consumer. With technology at your fingertips and the free market at your playground, your options are greater than ever, right? Mm, Well, what about that magical device you're shopping on? Of all the smartphones sold in the U.S. this year, three manufacturers made about 80% of them. The cell phone service you're using? Four providers tied up more than 98% of that market. When you search the internet, there's a greater than 60% chance you're using Google. And what do you think people said when I asked them where they made their last online purchase? I was on Amazon. 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 I'm going to go with Amazon. Amazon. Amazon.com. Amazon. Amazon. Um, Actually, last time was Amazon. Um, Last time I made an online purchase, I was on Nordstrom.com. Amazon. Um, It was probably... It was probably Amazon. So if the world is at our fingertips, why do our options seem to be getting narrower? And it's not just in the gee whiz tech world. Drugstore chains, airlines, cable TV, toilet paper makers. The list goes on and on. Over the past 20 years, 
the market share held by the top handful of players has increased in more than 75% of U.S. industries. That's worrying, not just from the perspective of choice. It may be both a symptom of and contributor to weaker competition across our economy. And if that's the case, then it could have severe consequences for consumers and workers, affecting prices, wages, investments, and possibly overall economic growth. Having intense competition is the mechanism that transform the pursuit of private uh, interest into a public good. That's Luigi Zingales, a professor at the University of Chicago, channeling the great 18th century economist Adam Smith. Zingales regularly addresses this topic in his research and on his podcast, Capital Isn't. So when you reduce the number of firms that actually compete, the risk that uh, this mechanism will not hold is uh, quite large. Now, to be fair, concentration doesn't automatically equal less competition. Economist Jan Eichhout says that if the only two fuel stations in town are right next to each other, they might still compete fiercely on price. The key to gauging competition, he says, is to look at a firm's markup, the gap between what it costs to produce a good and the price the company charges to consumers. That's what Eichhout and a colleague did. They examined markups at U.S. firms over the past 70 years. They found that from 1950 to 1980, markups were pretty much flat at around 17% of cost. But since 1980, they've risen to a whopping 67%. And during the same period, they found profits relative to GDP have quadrupled. But hold on. Why are rising profits so bad? Here's Eichhout, who's a professor at Pompeo Fabra University in Barcelona. If a market is really competitive, a firm cannot afford to charge a high markup and cannot afford to make these huge profits. I mean, this is the whole tenet of competitive markets that, you know, if you make huge profits, then there's room for someone else to come in and say, well, I want a share of that. Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be happening, or at least not as much as it used to. Not only are profits moving higher and higher, but measures of what economists call business dynamism, or the rates at which companies are born and die, have declined. Firm entries are especially down, plunging 40% from 1977 to 2014, according to U.S. Census Bureau data. But that raises another question. If these markups are rising, why isn't inflation? Well, for many companies, they've increased markups not by raising prices, but by lowering costs. But either way, if those markups persist, it means companies aren't being forced to pass them on to consumers or workers or both. Here's MIT professor David Autor. You could argue that there's been a lot of productivity growth that's not translating into lower consumer prices or higher worker wages that's just translating into profits. So in a more robust competitive environment, you might expect uh, more of those productivity gains to either feed into directly reducing prices or into uh, competing more vigorously for workers. Now that we're really getting worried about concentration, it's worth asking, what's causing it in the first place? Many economists have argued that concentration is the result of a more relaxed approach taken by antitrust regulators in the U.S. since the 1980s allowing big mergers and acquisitions to slowly erode the competitive landscape. That may be partly true, but it's unlikely to tell the whole story. 
It's not quite as pronounced, but concentration is happening in developed economies outside the U.S. as well, in countries with a wide range of antitrust environments. So there's probably something else going on. Indeed, many economists have lined up behind something called the superstar firm thesis that was first developed by MIT's author. In a nutshell, it proposes that globalization and technology have combined to make big winners out of a small number of corporate players. Think of a company, maybe a regional or national seller, that once had some small advantage over competitors because of, say, scale or maybe product quality. Imagine that same firm got a jump on expanding internationally as markets became more globalized, and imagine it invested ahead of rivals in a global online sales and marketing platform. Here's Autor. These kinds of changes in competition,、uh, stemming from、uh, from improved search technology, from globalization, even from changes in the, the type of products that people are buying, has tended to magnify these small competitive advantages and give outsized rewards to the kind of Leaders within given industries, and so is born the superstar firm, gobbling up a much greater share of the market than was ever previously possible. Now, the free market is still supposed to take care of this. In theory, every superstar firm will get its comeuppance from a new challenger as it grows complacent or falls victim to some newer technology. But many of today's superstars. Are so big that economists worry they may be blocking the next generation of challengers. Sometimes by buying them up, sometimes by influencing rules and regulations to their favor, and sometimes with predatory pricing. Even if the growth of these superstar firms is not a reflection of a regulatory failure or a lack of competition, it could still be the case that once、uh, firms gain dominance. They have an incentive, a temptation to abuse that dominant position. So there's definitely reason to keep a close eye on this. Some economists and antitrust advocates have called for the government to get much more aggressive in preventing predatory behavior, blocking mergers, and even breaking up existing companies like Google and Amazon. And even those who don't go that far stress that there's more at stake than just consumer choice or fighting isolated instances of competitive unfairness. It's really about protecting our economy from a broader breakdown in the competition that makes it so vibrant. Here's Raghu Rajan, a professor of finance at the University of Chicago Booth School. We have to be vigilant that、uh, this kind of domination. Doesn't lead to a loss of economic dynamism. We have to be vigilant that the、uh, you know the, the 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 heart of capitalism is dynamism, constant innovation, constant churn, and it is possible that domination could reduce that. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way, from design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions. July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor: Amazon. Official airline: Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com/GreenFestival. 
So that was Chris Condon. I'm joined now by Noah Smith, a Bloomberg opinion columnist on lots of interesting things in economics. Um, Noah, I should ask you, actually following on from that last quote from Raghu Rajan uh, at the end there, you know, do you think fundamentally the kind of developments that we're talking about here with market concentration, maybe a reduction in, in competition in key parts of the economy, do you think that is a threat to capitalism? Is it sapping uh, market forces of the, the power to, to force innovation and growth? I do worry that it is. And I don't think it's, it's you know, a slam dunk case yet that it is. But I think that a lot of people are very rapidly becoming worried about this. And, of course, you already covered a lot of the reasons why. But there's other uh, problems with this massive concentration, too. One is uh, something that almost never gets talked about, which is idea hoarding. So if you have a few companies that are really at the top of their field and generating a lot of good ideas internally for how to improve their business practices and how to you know, get better technology, they're probably not going to share. If you have a large ecosystem of competitors that are on a kind of even footing, they can hire each other's workers away from each other and the ideas will therefore flow between the companies. However, if you have Google as the internet services company or Amazon as the online retailer, Facebook as the social network provider, then all the best people just get trapped in these companies and ideas don't flow out of these companies. And one, one interesting thing is that we've seen that top company productivity growth has not slowed down in recent years. It's actually accelerated slightly. However, overall productivity growth has slowed because so many companies aren't sharing in the productivity growth. You have Google is becoming incredibly more productive. Amazon's becoming incredibly more productive. But then you have this long tail of companies that aren't becoming more productive and whose productivity is basically stagnating. And we don't know how much of that is cause and how much of that is effect. Like there could be some companies that just have some secret management sauce that makes them really good at doing what they do and so naturally tend to get all the best people and to take over the markets and, you know, make those markets more concentrated. That's one possibility. Another possibility is this idea trap thing. And uh, of course, a third potential problem is that these large companies kill startups. And so there's more research now about kill zones. People are investigating the question of whether or not VCs and startups essentially avoid anywhere where they might have to go up against Facebook or Google or Amazon. And um, there's also the, uh, the question of eating of ecosystems where basically at some point these large uh, tech companies start eating all their third-party suppliers and buying all the third-party suppliers or replacing them in-house. You see this with of course, Amazon replacing third-party merchants with its own in-house products. You see this with Google buying all the websites where their ads run. And that could slow productivity growth by basically slowing the number of new entrants that comes into the markets. So that's why technology concentration is kind of scary. But, but of course, it's important to remember that most of the industries in America are not what we call the tech industry. And those are becoming more concentrated, too. You know, there's a lot of worry, parallel worry. So we talk about companies, tech companies eating their ecosystems. A, a parallel worry for, you know, Tyson Chicken or whatever is the idea that they'll squeeze their suppliers. And you'll have all these little, like, independent suppliers whose profit margins get basically squeezed to nothing by this giant buyer. You have monopsony power. Um, of course, workers are a different kind of supplier, and they can get squeezed too, as we've talked about. So you have a lot of these these different bad things that can happen. And we haven't even talked about the political effects where large companies can, can have huge political power as well. And no one wants to, no one wants to go against, you know, in the old days it was General Motors in, mm -hmm. the, in the future. Of course, you know, we recently saw 
a successful sort of joint effort between Bernie Sanders on the left and Trump and Tucker Carlson on the right <laughs> to to force Amazon to raise their their minimum wage. Uh, so, you know, maybe maybe this is not something worth worrying about, and maybe companies that get really big will actually be the targets of increased political pressure and disapprobation. But I would say there's still the worry that overall, no one in some small town in Kentucky is going to want to go against Tyson Chicken. Although even your example, you sort of if you've got into a world where basically they're so big that they can then sort of do do the world a favor by giving everyone a wage rise. It doesn't <laughs> right. feel like quite the right dynamic between right. between government and companies. Oh, I don't. I agree completely, <laughs> and I think this idea of jawboning companies into doing the right thing is actually not a very good way of making policy. The point about the um, the longer tail, I mean, it's interesting. Andy Holdane, the deputy governor of the Bank of England, he's looked at this from in the UK. And uh, it's very striking that, that, that there's always been a long tail in the UK of, of companies who were kind of not very productive. But as you say, there's this top 1% of companies that since 2008 had had, you know, double digit growth in productivity. They've been, they're dis- in fact, we, we actually have more of them in the UK than Germany and other places, these top, top performers. Mm-hmm. Um, but then 99% of companies had had little or no productivity growth uh, since 2008. And and when you look at the characteristics of that top one percent, it's as you—it's a little bit your, the talk, what you were saying about the idea hoarding. They tend to be run by hyper-connected boards who are all part of a kind of small community of super boards, and hyper, and have hyper-connected sort of workers working for them who don't really go out into the broader community, if you like. Um, so there is this lack of absorption, lack of the the. the the knowledge, the, the kind of best practice of these companies has just not spread in the way that it used to. Um, and I'm sure that it's a lot of the same uh, dynamics that you talked about. The question is, how does technology flow between companies? This is a question that needs a lot more work uh, research-wise because we don't have an amazing idea of this. But I think that uh, the best way we know that technology flows between companies is for workers to flow between mm. companies. The question is, how do we get more really top workers to go out and, and use their talents turning a second-rate company into a first-rate one then making a first-rate company a little bit better. And um, that's very difficult because the, there is a natural tendency to cluster because smart people build off of the ideas of other smart people. You don't want to be the one smart person working in a company full of not-so-smart people. Um, you want to be the smart person working with all the best other people. Um, one interesting idea is to use the university system. In America, we've had great success uh, getting universities and university labs and and professors to give a boost to the private sector by basically commercializing their ideas, um, by working with people from the private sector, etc. There's so many good ideas and smart people in universities. Of course, a lot of times that'll go to the deep-pocketed big companies. Uh, You know, Google will be working with a million university research labs. So the question is, could we tweak the law for who universities work with to incentivize them to work with lagging smaller companies to help them catch up, nudge them away from working with the Googles of the world? Um, There is one thing I wanted to say about uh, ideas to raise companies' productivity. Sure, yeah. So the idea is exporting and competing in world markets. There is copious evidence that competing in world markets uh, is correlated with higher productivity. Of course, that correlation could be because 
more competitive companies have just are able to go out into world markets. But actually, there's now starting to be more uh, research saying that com- when companies go and compete in world markets, they become more competitive because it it you know some of the companies the less productive companies die, and the more productive companies sort of rise to the challenge, rise to the task, and, and become even more productive. And, um, you know, while this, of course, could increase concentration at home, it decreases concentration globally. That's, by the way, the result of Paul Krugman's new trade theory that he did back in the day. But the idea is to get more companies competing in export markets, to get a lot of those, the long tail of, of not-so-productive companies to get out there and sell stuff overseas is, uh, is a is a big idea that um, I think hasn't been tried enough. And it's often, it's often a thing that people think about developing countries doing, you know, these poor companies trying to find their comparative advantage, trying to develop some tentpole industry, industrial policy, blah, blah, blah. We think of this in terms of that. But in fact, I think that there are so many sort of lagging companies in rich countries, especially rich com- countries with large, you know, um, trade deficits that, that probably discourage a lot of companies from thinking about export. Uh, you can export a ton and still run a huge trade deficit, but um, I, I'm not talking about like hmm. increasing net exports because boost GDP. Yeah, yeah. You know the stuff Trump talks about. I'm not talking about <laughs> that. I'm talking no, about no, gross exports. Nice. Yeah. Even if you end up importing more too, I'm talking about simply competing in world markets. Is this underrated idea that competition forces the improvement of productivity and allows the improvement of productivity? And I think that's an underrated strategy and idea that needs to be tried more. And something that is uh, technologically now much more open to small businesses, and we see it uh, yes. everywhere. I mean, I've talked yes. to I've talked to tiny companies that you know people who are just literally in their back room making uh, pre- you know cool presents to send to people or, or cards or whatever, and they will find uh, you know that their biggest. One of them was telling me this, this woman in the depths of Scotland was telling me that her biggest uh, export market was Argentina because one Argentine uh, film star had tweeted something about something they'd found on her uh, website <laughs> you know, in the, on Amazon. And then uh, you know, everybody had, uh, had started buying, everyone in Argentina had started buying, this, buying her, her products. So that's the kind of thing I've noticed. I think the Canadian trade deal they did with China had a, one of the things in it was to require China to make um, and Chinese companies to open their sort of online vending platforms to small businesses in Ch- in Canada, and that could potentially uh, open access to that market for the for the whole swathe of businesses. And you think of trade deals as often benefiting the big multinationals, but this was specifically talking about small businesses. So I completely sure. agree, and it's I mean all of the evidence shows that you get faster productivity growth from being more open to the rest of the world and exporting more. Which is why why Brexit is such an interesting choice for the <laughs> for the <laughs> for the UK, you can um, say bad. It's a, it, it was bad. It's, a, it's an interesting. Um, it's an interesting thing to do. An economy that is inevitably going to make it slightly less open uh, to the rest of the world. We are definitely going to be talking about uh, all of these issues, as you say. It is the big new thing, although probably not so new, but certainly the new thing as far as economics is concerned and policymakers is concerned. This question of, of, of market concentration, it will be a big topic of debate in Singapore. Thank you very much, Noah Smith. Thank you. It has been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The New Economy. Today's episode was reported by Chris Condom with editor Scott Landman and produced by Magnus Henriksen. With special thanks to Noah Smith. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.